I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Charles, Count of Angoulême. Welcome back. Unlike our previous subject, this Charles, yes, everyone's named Charles, will not be getting six episodes. I'm sure he did plenty, but his wife, daughter, and son get all the attention. Okay, in reality, he probably didn't do that much, but I will get to what he did do and how, what I mean by he didn't do that much. Before then, though, I need to kind of frame things by letting you know who was in charge in various parts of Europe. In France, at the time of his birth, Charles VII was still king. He and his son Louis, the future Louis XI, were, as expected and unsurprisingly, having issues with each other, and Louis was living in Burgundy. The Duke of Burgundy at the time was Philip the Good, and he was having issues with his son, Charles, the future Charles the Bold. In England, Henry VI was enjoying his first reign, but would be overthrown in March of 1461. And Spain was still divided, mainly between the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile, with the Emirate of Granada still controlling the southern portion of the Iberian Peninsula. Portugal was ruled by the House of Aviz, as it had been since John of Gaunt's time. If you want to hear more about that, listen to my episode with Cork Out History podcast about Philippa of Lancaster. So, now we know who is in control of various areas, so let's look at Charles. Charles, Count of Angoulême, was, of course, the son of John of Angoulême, Charles of Orléans' younger brother, the one who was imprisoned in England for almost half his life. Charles of Angoulême was born in 1459, and no further details were recorded. This makes him three years older than his cousin, Louis of Orléans, the future Louis XII, and 26 years younger than their shared cousin, Francis of Brittany. I want to make sure to place him within the Valois family. He was the nephew of Charles of Orléans, the one that I just did six episodes about, and the grandson of Louis of Orléans and Valentina Visconti. This Charles was born during the reign of Charles VII, but of course, as I mentioned, most of his life would be spent in the reign of Louis XI. His mother was Margaret or Marguerite de Rohan. I can also find next to nothing about his mother, by the way. The one thing I have found is that she didn't really focus on her children's education, at least not in the literary sense. Which is a bit odd, because John of Angoulême was known for his vast library. 
At the time of his birth, Charles's parents had lost their first son, but he would be followed by a sister, Joan. His father, John, did have one illegitimate child, John, who could have been named for himself or his brother, the original Orleans bastard. Charles's father, John, had spent his time upon returning to France, buying books and helping his brother, the bastard, fight against English forces. Books really were the thing for Orleans men. You should remember John from Charles of Orleans' multiple episodes, and he was the younger brother who had been sent to France as a hostage. John died on the 20th of April, 1467, leaving Charles and his sister Joan in their mother's custody. Charles was only eight, and now the Count of Angoulême. While his mother would ignore his education, in part, it appears that like his father, uncle, and cousin, books were his thing. He expanded his father's collection. His Book of Hours is currently held in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Due to being raised by his mother from such a young age, Charles was rather close to her, as would be expected, and I'll get more into their relationship in a few minutes. At some point in his mid to late teens, Charles began, well, keeping mistresses. This would be a large part of his life and probably bothered his mother greatly. And like her, I'll be covering this more in a few minutes. Now, I know I joke about Wikipedia, and there's something I want you all to do when you have a chance. Don't do it if you're driving, please. Find Charles of Angoulême's page on there. Just a quick glance. It's short. And then check his wife's page. So this would be Louise of Savoy. Not as short, right? But now, have a read through hers. Yeah, that's a lot about her husband in there. I feel like a lot that could have been said on Charles's page was said on his wife's page. And a lot of that is about Charles's mistresses. I feel that his wife, who I promise I will cover in great detail, should be insulted by this. If any of my listeners have Wikipedia editing privileges, you should look into fixing this. I can send you some sources. In general, finding sources on Charles in English and French is difficult. It's easier to research his wife, son, or daughter and find details about him there, which is what I have done. Francis I and 16th century France by R.J. Nitsch and Marguerite de Navarre, mother of the Renaissance by Patricia Francis Chalokin, have been my go-to sources along with some journal articles, which do mainly focus on Charles's wife. For Charles's daughter, Marguerite, who will be coming up soon as a special episode for patrons in the Heir Apparent and Usurp tiers, I'll be using these same sources and a bit of her own writing. Yes, we have another woman who writes. Charles had attempted to marry Mary the Rich, or Mary of Burgundy, who, as her name might suggest, was the heiress of the Burgundian holdings and very rich. She was the hottest item on the marriage market in 1477. I am not joking. She turned Charles down and eventually married Maximilian of Austria, and their son would found the Habsburg dynasty of Spain. Charles wasn't the only man saddened by Mary's choice in husband. Louis XI was, well, enraged that she hadn't agreed to marry his son Charles, the future Charles VIII. Since I did mention at the start that... Philip the Good was in charge of Burgundy. This is how quickly it changed. Philip was obviously succeeded by his son, Charles the Bold, who did not last long in the role. Bold is the English translation of, see if I can say this right, guys, temere, 
which also translates to reckless. In addition to Charles, the future Charles VIII and our Charles of Angoulême, Mary also turned down Louis XI's brother. Marrying him would have enraged Louis more than not marrying his son did. She also turned down George, Duke of Clarence. She just was a picky woman, rightly so. Patrons will also know that Anne of France's daughter, Suzanne, was spurned by Nicholas of Lorraine, who also wanted to marry Mary. I actually plan on covering Mary and her family next year, and I'm really excited about this, so be on the lookout for that. Once Charles reached his majority, he was expected to attend court, as you know, a pense du son. Since, at this point, around 1478, he was third in line to the crown after his cousins, Charles, the future Charles VIII, and Louis, the future Louis XII. His mother joined him, and Louis XI, the king, decided he wanted to keep the next generation related. Remember, everyone is related. So he had Charles betrothed to Louise of Savoy, who was also Louis's wife's niece. Louise was only two at this point, so no actual marriage yet, thankfully. She would move to France in 1483, when she was seven after her mother's death. Louise was raised by Anne of France in her household, and she was kind of the poor cousin in there. Charles and his mother didn't consider Louise to be a prestigious enough bride for him. They actually quarreled with the king about this, which is not surprising. Now, you may remember that Louis XI had married Louis of Orléans, Charles of Orléans' son, and this Charles's cousin to his own daughter, Joan of France, in an attempt to end the Orléans line. His decision to marry Charles of Angoulême off to his poor niece was to prevent Charles from marrying a wealthy heiress. Remember, the fortunes of poor heirs are made through wealthy heiresses. Louis did earn the nickname the Universal Spider because of the webs he spun, and he really didn't consider anyone's feelings, other than his own and possibly his oldest daughter's, since patrons will know she was the least foolish of women. In fairness to Charles and his mother, Louise was just the daughter of a foreign duke. These rules on prestige are just horribly dehumanizing. No one could have known how fierce of a mother she would become or how good she would do for her children. Instead of putting up with this treatment, Charles returned to his Angoulême territories and stayed there for the next few years. Louis XI died in 1483, and with this, Charles hoped he could convince the new king, Charles VIII, to end his engagement. My patrons who have listened to Anna France's episode are probably giggling at this point. Charles VIII was only 13, and his unofficial regent was his sister, Anne. And Anne had been raising Louise for the last year and adored the girl. Charles was not allowed to break his betrothal. Anne even told Charles off for his licentious lifestyle. He was a bit open about his liaisons with multiple mistresses. I wasn't joking, he collected them. With this rejection, Charles needed another way to get out of his future marriage, and he decided to join his cousin, Louis of Orléans, when Louis began to plan a dissolution to his own marriage. 
As I've mentioned, Louis of Orléans was the son of last week's subject, Charles of Orléans, and he was, of course, this week's subject's first cousin. Louis had been married to Charles VIII and Anne of France's sister, Joan, in 1476. And Joan had some physical deformities based on descriptions, some type of spinal curvature, and a hip or femur issue. Due to these, Louis rejected her despite being her husband, and despite her being a brilliant woman. To try to get out of this marriage, Louis conspired with his and Charles's cousin, Francis of Brittany. Louis requested a papal annulment, agreed to assist Francis in keeping Brittany free from France, and then Louis would get to marry Francis's daughter, Anne of Brittany, who was also his cousin. Charles joined this conspiracy in hopes of getting out of his own betrothal. I don't know if he had a specific future bride picked out. To make a long story short, this conspiracy led to the Mad War, which in the end would see Brittany become part of France, and after Francis's death, would see Anne marry Charles VIII of France, so basically no one got what they wanted. Louis of Orléans would eventually get his annulment and get to marry Anne, but it would take him a few extra years and she'd be a widow at that point. Despite his rebellion, Charles was forgiven by Charles VIII, but he was forced to marry Louise. On the 16th of February, 1488, 12-year-old Louise and 28- or 29-year-old Charles were married. Thankfully, Anne of France protected her ward, and the marriage wasn't consummated until 1491, when Louise was 15, which, while young, is still better than 12. In fact, Louise returned to Anne's care to continue her education immediately following the marriage. Oh, and Louis of Orléans would also be forgiven by Charles VIII once he became king, and they actually got along pretty well. Now, I've mentioned Charles's predilection for women who aren't his wife, and this continued after his marriage. When his wife finally moved to their home, she would have been met by Jean de Polignac, Dame Combronde, who was a lady in his mother's household, and Jean le Comte. Dame Combronde was actually managing Charles's household as well, and she was his primary mistress. Now, quickly, different sources list her name as Antoinette or Jean, and various sources I've found have done this. I'll just refer to her as Dame Combronde. Apparently, she and Louise got along well, and she would stay on as Louise's friend and confidant after Charles's death, and I'm not joking with you even a little. Through this mistress, Charles had three daughters. One, Jeanne d'Anglème, Dame Combron's oldest daughter, is actually an ancestor to Charles III of England, the head of state to my country and well, just a few others. In case you're curious, it's through George I's great-grandmother, Countess Louise Juliana of Nassau. While, by all accounts, Charles and Louise's marriage was harmonious, it wasn't what we would consider a normal marriage. First, Charles had his mistresses, and he didn't plan to get rid of them. Second, Louise had been raised by the most powerful woman in France, and was now living with a man who was a, well, a bit less powerful. Poor Louise also seemed worried that she wouldn't be able to, uh, well, please her husband in the marital way. There is a letter from her father to a friend referencing a letter his daughter had sent him. 
in her letter to her father, Louise, then only 12, asked how to arouse her husband. Yes, this is what her father is sharing with someone else. I just cringed reading it so much and I'm cringing even telling you about this. First, she was 12 and that breaks my heart in so many ways. And second, maybe she should have asked Anne of France, not her father. Finally, how dare her father share this with anyone else? When Louise was only 14, she made a pilgrimage to ask for fertility assistance. And my heart breaks again for what her childhood must have been like. As far as I know, they hadn't even consummated their marriage then. And I will be sharing a lot more about Louise in her daughter's special episode. It was this pilgrimage that would give her some amazing news, which I will get to in just a moment. Sorry, I feel like I'm saying that a lot. Charles and Louise had two children, Marguerite of Angoulême, who will in turn become the Duchess of Alençon and then the Queen of Navarre, and Francis of Angoulême, who will become the King of France in 1515 as Francis I. Through his children, Charles is the ancestor to all kings of France until France finally got rid of their monarch, other than, of course, the House of Bonaparte. He's also the ancestor of all kings of Spain from 1700. Just a fun thought. That makes Louis of Orléans, Charles of Angoulême's grandfather, a bit of the John of Gaunt of France and a bit of Spain. Plus, one of his descendants' illegitimate lines will lead to the English royal family. I think Louis of Orléans needs to be recognized just as much as John of Gaunt. Marguerite was born in 1492, and Francis was born in 1494. Francis, in French Francois, but I'm just going to call him Francis, was rumored to be named after an Italian hermit, Francis of Paloa, who had prophesied that Louise would give birth to a king during that pilgrimage I mentioned earlier. Francis of Paloa is actually a saint and had been sent to France to try to save Louis XI's life. The poor holy man was then forced to stay in France by each subsequent king until he died. And after this message, you'll hear more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The prophecy, though, occurred prior to the birth of Marguerite, which means her being a daughter was a bit of a disappointment. There wasn't a party or anything after she was born, but there was one for Francis's birth. The likelihood of Francis becoming king was so small. At the time of his birth, his father, Charles, was alive. The king, Charles VIII, was young, and the king's son, Charles Orlando, was almost two and seemingly healthy. Plus, Louis of Orléans was alive and three years younger than Francis's own father. Unlike Louis of Orléans, Charles didn't partake in Charles VIII's Italian campaigns. He was really focused far more on his own holdings and his book collection. His collection is recorded as having a thousand volumes. He would even purchase books that had originally been prepared for the king. In theory, while Charles VIII and Louis of Orléans were gone, Charles was the leading man in the kingdom. But King Charles had left his sister, Anne of France, in charge as his regent. Which again, wasn't the worst thing. And in our Charles's case, in addition to not being interested in war, he didn't really seem interested in politics. Now, I'm pretty much at the end of Charles's story. Yeah, there's minimal details about him available, but I do want to talk a bit more about what happened after he was gone. Charles of Angoulême died on the 1st of January, 1496, and he was only 36 or 37. That date, though, the 1st of January, is kind of interesting. He was incredibly young, as I'm sure you all know, even at this time. His own father, John, lived to 67, his uncle, Charles of Orléans, lived to 70, and Louis XII lived to 52. So not even making it to 40 was shocking. And it appears that he died of an infection of some type, and obviously cultures weren't done, so we can't know. So obviously this would be a short episode if I only talked about Charles of Angoulême. No one has complained about episodes being too long, so I'm going to use a bit more time to discuss Louise of Savoy, Charles of Angoulême's wife. This isn't just because she's fascinating, but because I think it also helps answer the question of, would Charles have been a better king than the king who ruled instead of him? The king whose rule started not long after Charles's death was Louis XII, the father of the French people. And he was younger than Charles, and losing him as king would have been a bit sad, you know, unless you were Joan of France. But I'll get to that at the end. In addition to looking at Charles's widow, I'll take a look at his son's actual rule, at least a few parts. As for the third survivor of Charles, his daughter Marguerite, she will, of course, be getting her own special episode soon for patrons in the Heir Apparent and Usurp tiers. Please come see us at Patreon if you're interested in special episodes. Louise could have easily changed Charles' entire household the moment he died. Francis wasn't even two, and Charles had given her custody of their children in his will. Instead, she was measured. She kept his primary mistress in her household as a friend and confidant. She saw to it that Charles's illegitimate daughters were raised well, 
educated, and the two who were married, married rather well. Remember, one of these daughters is the ancestor, through a female line, of the Hanoverian kings of England, and through them, the current king, Charles III. I feel I should also let you know that at the time of her husband's death, Louise was only 19. In researching both Charles and Louise, I found a journal article about Louise's supposed journal by Dr. Myra Orth. Dr. Orth was an art historian and an expert on late medieval and Renaissance manuscripts, focusing on their illuminations. Yes, that does sound like an amazing job. She believed the journal often identified as Louise's was at the most ghost-written by Francis de Molin. If you're curious as to why Francis was such a popular name with Louise's advisors, it appears that Franciscan friars were her preferred religious advisors. And, well, that name is very popular with those that join the order. Oddly, the most famous living Francis is not a Franciscan. Hello, Pope Francis, if you are listening. Based on Dr. Orth's research, she goes further than Louise's earlier 1900s biographer, Henri Hauser, who felt that Louise dictated parts of the journal. Why am I bringing up this journal? Well, it shows something of Louise's potential religious leanings, which will become important to France very soon. The journal was scathing to the clergy and royal finances. The entry started during the reign of Louis XII, and Inwin de Molin falls out of royal favor in 1522. It also includes a great deal of information about Francis, the future Francis I. Most importantly, the writing style of the journal matches de Molin's. It's important to note that this journal is a useful source, regardless of whether Louise wrote it or not herself, so don't just toss it aside. With her husband gone, Louise needed to look after the education of her own children, in addition to his other children. And she did a great job at this. Both her daughter and son were considered leaders in Renaissance France. Their mutual love of literature and art, along with the patronage of artists, architects, and thinkers, would help shape French progress. Now, I've told you Louise was 19 at the time of her husband's death, but I should probably tell you a bit more about the situation in France. In 1496, Charles VIII was still king, and he was only 26. He was married to Anne of Brittany, who patrons will know was basically forced to marry him after losing the second half of the Mad War to Charles VIII's sister, Anne of France. Anne of Brittany was only 19 and had already had four pregnancies there was every chance the young royal couple would have a son or two survive childhood, and very little chance that Charles of Angoulême would be king, let alone his son. After Charles VIII, his brother-in-law slash cousin, Louis of Orléans, was next in line, and Louis was only 34. While he was unlikely to have children with his current wife, since he, well, loathed her, that's not cool, he could likely get an annulment and marry again. The idea of any member of the Angoulême family becoming king was almost unthinkable. And the only member of the Angoulême family who could rule with the death of Charles was two-year-old Francis. Today, of course, we know that both Charles VIII and Louis XII would fail to have surviving male issue. Had Charles of Angoulême survived, he would have been 56 or so when he became king. Instead, his 21-year-old son would rule. There was a little bit of a difference between Charles and Francis. 
They both loved learning and were educated men. But Francis didn't mind a bit of war. Once he became king, he was happy to continue the wars that his cousin slash father-in-law Louis XII and Louis's predecessor, Charles VIII, had started in Italy. In addition, he also focused on Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, who was also Charles I of Spain, in part due to his losses in Italy at Charles's hand. Their military aggression towards each other seemed to be more than just traditional military issues. It looked to have been personal. This is where I think Charles of Angoulême might have had a very different rule than his son. He seemed to have little interest in war, and that wouldn't have been a bad thing for France. France had finally started properly recovering from the Hundred Years' War, and instead of just letting it, looking for trade agreements and things like that, Charles VIII and Louis XII started more wars. For Francis, things would go poorly. He would eventually be captured by his personal-slash-military enemy, Charles V, in 1525. He was forced to send two of his sons to secure his own ransom. It was as bad for France as John II being taken after Poitiers. His sons weren't released until 1530 as part of the Treaty of Cambrai, which was negotiated not by Francis and Charles, but by Louise of Savoy and Margaret of Austria, Charles VIII of France's spurned fiancé and Charles V's aunt. She had also been raised in Anne of France's household, so she and Louise were actually what we would consider friends. Francis's sister, Marguerite of Navarre, also helped. She was there. Whether she actually got to negotiate is up for debate. Had Charles of Angoulême survived his illness in 1496 and lived to rule, it is rather likely that at this point he would have been dead, since 71 is a long time to live in this time period. But his personality might have rubbed off on his son had he lived for longer and had more of an influence on Ver Francis. Like his father, Francis was made to marry someone he may not have preferred by his king. Louis XII ordered his oldest daughter, Claude, to marry Francis in 1505, when Louis XII thought he was dying. The couple didn't marry then, mainly because another one of the strong women of this era, Anne of Brittany, Louis's wife, said, no. Louis XII survived and had to wait until Anne of Brittany died before having his daughter married to his cousin, heir, and now son-in-law. Oh god, everyone's related. I should tell you in rather odd news that with Francis and Claude's marriage, the three surviving legitimate Orléans children were, well, back together and closer than ever. Claude was a descendant of both Charles of Orléans and his sister Margaret of Orléans, and Francis was a descendant of John of Angoulême, their brother. Don't worry, their children's pedigree lines don't look completely Habsburgian, but it's pretty close. The last thing I want to discuss before answering the big question of this episode is religion. Many of you likely know that Martin Luther released his 95 Thesis in 1517 as an academic discussion piece. He genuinely wasn't trying to overthrow the church. His ideas are religiously complicated, mainly dealing with purgatory, sin, and payments as in money to the church to deal with said sin and purgatory. And a lot of this goes back to rather fascinating early conversations in the church of the nature of Jesus, sin, heaven, hell, and how sin worked, and specifically 
the nature of Jesus. Really, it's fascinating. It is a theological discussion for another day and possibly another podcast. As any of you who have listened to John of Gaunt's episode will know, though, Luther wasn't the first reformer. When he did share his thoughts, there had been changes occurring in the Catholic Church for decades. The Lollards, the Hussites, and even the Cathars had been trying to reform the church or even start their own church for centuries prior to Luther even being born. One thing that's often brought up in relation to Luther is the Bible in the vernacular. But this was not one of his main worries. It's just another theological discussion. And again, it's not for this podcast. But quickly, I've even mentioned a few weeks ago in This Too Shall Pass that books of hours were written in the vernacular, but those weren't the only religious books written in languages other than Latin. Anne of Bohemia, the first wife of Richard II, had Bibles written in multiple languages, including English. So what does religion have to do with Charles of Angoulême or French history at all? Well, things are about to get messy in France regarding religion. And Charles's family is going to be in the middle of it, thanks in no small part to his amazing daughter. By all accounts, he was perfectly orthodox in his beliefs. His book of hours appears as expected, and there seems to be nothing heretical. But his wife and children especially his daughter, may not have felt the same. Louise was in general a supporter of the Franciscan order, and this order is usually orthodox. Its members had participated in the Inquisition. I know, nobody expects the Inquisition. But they were mildly reform-minded in certain areas. The Franciscan order was founded on a basis of poverty. Their founder, Francis of Assisi, wanted them to be a poor brotherhood. The order had struggled with this throughout their existence in the 1300s, and there were some in the group who accused various popes of heresy. So while in general an orthodox order, they were willing to raise their voices when they saw things they felt were against the word of God. These were the men who were assisting Louise with the education of her soon-to-be rather influential son and daughter. Had Louis XII had his own sons and Francis never reigned, the French religious wars may never have occurred, or may have occurred in a different way. Trust me, there was need for religious reform. Instead, there would be this slow, simmering stew of religious change pushing from behind the crown. As far as I can find, Louise, Marguerite, and Francis were all officially Catholic. But Marguerite and her second husband had Protestant sympathies, or probably better put, reformist sympathies. Francis was, at least at the beginning of his reign, tolerant of reformers. So what does this have to do with Charles? Well, he was a man of letters, a thoughtful man, who might have taken a different stand than his son. While Martin Luther had published his writings in 1517, John Calvin was more influential in France and was himself influenced by Luther. Francis had a general interest in learning and brought in those who had new ideas, which is often a code word for religious reform. It's highly likely his father would have as well. Charles may have done so earlier than Francis. And while we can't know how different the religious situation in France would have been under a Charles of Angoulême government versus that of a Francis I, we do know that religion will impact multiple reigns throughout Europe, 
through to the 16th century. And it's an interesting little what if. Patrons, you get to explore this a little more next week. So, would Charles of Angoulême have been a better king than the kings who ruled instead of him? Well, for him, it was his cousin, Louis XII, and his son, Francis I. I've already mentioned how losing Louis XII would have been sad. But let's look at Francis. I think Francis was a good king in many ways. I like people who are interested in education. But France was a mess when it came to war under Francis. In addition, Francis avoided calling the Estates General, as Louis XII had, and this is going to set French royalty up for a big fall. Hello, Madame la Guillotine. In addition, the amount of time that Francis's oldest son, also Francis, spent in Spanish captivity caused him to likely contract tuberculosis and die prior to his father. And this, in the end, would leave Francis with only one heir, Henri, who wouldn't have his first son until three years before his father died. This left the Angoulême-Valois line in a precarious situation. Had Charles lived longer, there is a chance his son would have avoided these wasteful wars. And there's even a greater chance there would have been more Angoulême heirs, since Charles and Louise could have had more children. I think overall the real difference would have been keeping France out of wars she couldn't win for a few extra years. This might have furthered France's recovery from the Hundred Years' War. Thank you all for joining me today. A few have asked if there's another way to support the show financially outside of Patreon, because I understand that sometimes monthly payments are a bit difficult, and I'm so grateful to even be asked this. I've set up a Buy Me a Coffee account. You can visit this at buymeacoffee forward slash past pod. I've added links to this in all my social media descriptions. All support is always welcome, and I understand that some of you really can't donate monthly or at all. That's why I make the main feed free, and I just love all the support. I am working on something exciting, or at least something I think is really exciting, and I will give you more information when it's ready but patrons will be getting a sneak peek in early October. So if you're curious, come join us. And I'd also like to welcome my newest patron, Heather. Patrons, Marguerite will be up on Sunday, and I will see the rest of you in three weeks for Antoine of Navarre. See you then. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at passpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash passpod. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.